everyone, and welcome back. Uh, To recap, on last episode, we situated this podcast in our specific context of the South Asian diaspora. We began by recalling our history of South Asian American activism and then moved into a deeper analysis of our position in the United States with a focus on the model minority myth. This pushed us to then challenge ourselves with the question of solidarity and how it can be built among South Asian and Black communities. We learned that in order for this to occur, we, as South Asians, must understand our limited positions and learn from the knowledges and experiences of the Black liberationists that have been doing this work for generations. In this process of education and transformation, we are presented with an undeniable call to fight for abolition. So let us first begin with understanding what we mean when we say the word abolition. I can give my understanding as the complete dismantlement of the current prison and policing systems. This includes, but is not limited to, police departments, jails, prisons, school-to-prison pipeline, the practices of mass incarceration, surveillance, and the current judicial system and process. However, abolition has many different understandings by different people in different contexts, and mine is not the only one. For example, Angela Davis, a Black educator, author, and activist who has spent decades working on racial justice, reminds us of the context of abolition in the larger history and framework of the United States. Actually, I would go back to the era of slavery, because the civil rights era, the mid-20th century, was an attempt to address problems that stemmed from slavery. In a sense, it was the second um, abolition movement, the first one being uh, the abolitionist movement against slavery. So I do think we have to uh, imagine these you know, prospects uh, uh, along a continuum that uh, goes for decades. Uh, you know, I often point out that when I was young, growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, and I used to sometimes get very upset that uh, as a black child, I couldn't do what I wanted to do. I couldn't go to the amusement park. I couldn't go to the big library. We had to go to this uh, sort of rundown uh, black library. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my mother was always very careful to tell me that this is not the way things were supposed to be. She said, this is not the way things are supposed to be, and they will change. Uh, so she allowed me to develop the capacity to imagine the future in a way that is that sometimes seems very radical but it seemed radical during the era of slavery and so today of course uh, uh, slavery even though we think we've abolished it we haven't but still in terms of the way people think about it it is uh, uh, it's seen as horrendous atrocious Davis reminds us that the current policing and prison systems are nothing new. Rather, they are a continuation of the American practices of slavery, in which Black people and communities are violently targeted and exploited for their labor. Therefore, our current understandings of abolition are also along this continuum. We must constantly return to our ancestors to determine how to move forward in our efforts for another abolitionist movement. I love that Davis reminds us that this may seem radical now, but in reality, all movements have seemed too radical when the oppressive powers fear such changes. So, with this basic understanding of what abolition is, I think many may be wondering why. Why do we want to abolish these systems that we have been told keep us safe and protect us? I think the list of these reasons could go on forever and ever, and we cannot get into all of them in this podcast, but I think we can begin by discussing the current prison and policing systems as inherently anti-Black institutions that have continued and reformed the violence of slavery. 
The United States has the largest prison population in the entire world, and with 2.2 million adults locked up, this system of mass incarceration has specifically targeted marginalized communities. According to the NAACP, Black Americans are incarcerated at five times the rate as white Americans, and they constitute approximately 34% of the entire prison population. This is not an accident. In fact, the practice of policing in Southern America originated as slave patrols who inflicted violence legitimized by the state and enslavers onto enslaved Black people. In her book, The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander analyzes how the current practices of the prison and policing systems are intentionally racist. She proves that increased imprisonment of Black Americans was deliberately done by powerful American institutions, including the government and courts, in order to target, weaken, and even eliminate these communities, making the prison and policing systems literally the new Jim Crow. Now, I'm going to play a clip from her TED Talk. It is a bit long, it's about 15 minutes, but no matter how many times I tried to cut it, I felt unsatisfied, because I think everything Alexander says is absolutely vital to understanding the history of policing in the United States and why abolition is necessary. Quite belatedly, I came to see that our criminal justice system now does function much more like a system of racial and social control than a system of crime prevention and control. Millions of children in the United States today grow up believing that they too one day will go to jail. In our most segregated, ghettoized communities in the United States, young people are shuttled from decrepit, underfunded schools to these brand new high-tech prisons. They're targeted at young ages, often before they're old enough to vote, stopped, frisked, searched, interrogated about who they are, where they're going if they headed home with nothing but Skittles in their hand. Stop, frisked, searched. And when they're arrested, they're typically arrested for a relatively minor, nonviolent, often drug-related offense the very sorts of crimes that occur with roughly equal frequency in middle-class white communities or on college campuses but go largely ignored, they're arrested, swept in, branded criminals and felons, and then ushered into a permanent second-class status, a status from which they will never escape. And this is happening to people by the millions in this country. Today, there are more African-American adults under correctional control, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. As of 2004, more black men were denied the right to vote than in 1870 the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Now, of course, during the Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests operated to keep black folks from the polls. Well, today, felon disenfranchisement laws in many states now accomplish what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. Now, this isn't a phenomenon that just affects some small segment of the African-American community. To the contrary, in many large urban areas today, more than half 
of working age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast, not class, caste, a group of people defined largely by race, relegated to a permanent second-class status by law. Now, I find that these days when I tell people that I now believe <laughs> that our system of mass incarceration is like a new Jim Crow, a new caste-like system, people typically react with shock disbelief. They say, how can you say that? How can you say that? Our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control, it's a system of crime control. And if black folks would stop running around committing so many crimes, they wouldn't have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their basic civil and human rights. But therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration, namely that it's been driven simply by crime and crime rates. It's not true. It's just not true. During a 30-year period of time, our nation's prison population quintupled. Not doubled or tripled, quintupled. We went from having a prison population in the 1970s of about 300,000 people. Today, we have an incarcerated population of over 2 million. We have the highest rate of incarceration in the world, dwarfing the rates of even highly repressive regimes like Russia or China or Iran. But during this 30-year period of time when our prison population exploded, crime rates fluctuated. They went up, went down, went back up again, went down again, went up, and then down, down, down. And today, as bad as crime rates are in some parts of the country, crime rates nationally are at historical lows. But incarceration rates have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or going down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains the sudden, unprecedented explosion in incarceration, if not simply crime and crime rates? Well, it turns out that the activists who posted that sign on the telephone pole were right. The war on drugs and the get tough movement, the wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States on the heels of the civil rights movement. Drug convictions alone, just drug convictions, account, accounted for about two-thirds of the increase in the federal prison population and more than half of the increase in the state prison population between 1985 and 2000, the period of our prison system's most dramatic expansion. Drug convictions have increased more than a thousand percent since the drug war began. I mean, to get a sense of how large a contribution the drug war has made to mass incarceration, think of it this way. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Now, most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime. Most do. You don't have to raise your hand. Most do, but the enemy in this war 
has been racially defined. Even though studies have now consistently shown for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites, this drug war has been waged almost exclusively on black and brown communities. In fact, where significant differences in the data can be found, it frequently suggests that white youth are more likely to engage in illegal drug use, drug abuse, and drug dealing than black youth. But that's not what you would guess by taking a peek inside our nation's prisons and jails, which are overflowing with black and brown drug offenders. Human Rights Watch reported at the peak of the drug war that in some states, 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison were one race, African-American. Now, I find that many people, when they see this data, they say, oh, you know, that's a shame, that's a shame. But, you know, we need a war on them, them in the hood. Because that's where the violent offenders can be found. That's where the drug kingpins can be found. But what many people don't realize is this drug war has never been focused primarily on rooting out the violent offenders or the drug kingpins. Federal funding in this war has flowed to those state and local law enforcement agencies that boost the sheer numbers of drug arrests. It's been a numbers game. Law enforcement agencies have been rewarded in cash by the millions for the sheer numbers of people swept in for drug offenses, virtually guaranteeing that law enforcement goes out looking for the so-called low-hanging fruit, stopping, frisking, searching as many people as possible to get their numbers up. And federal drug forfeiture laws allow state and local law enforcement agencies to keep for their own use up to 80% of the cash, cars, homes seized from suspected drug offenders. You don't have to be convicted, just suspected of a drug offense. And law enforcement can seize the cash out of your pocket, out of your home, take your car, sell it, keep the proceeds, thus giving law enforcement a direct monetary interest, not in ending drug abuse or drug addiction or drug-related harm but in the longevity of this war itself. And the US Supreme Court, far from resisting the rise of mass incarceration and the targeting of poor communities of color, far from resisting it, it has facilitated the drug war at every turn. The US Supreme Court has eviscerated Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures, giving the police license to stop, frisk, search just about anyone, anywhere, without a shred of evidence of any criminal activity, as long as they get consent, which is really just compliance. And for those who want to challenge the bias that is on full display in the drug war, the US Supreme Court has closed the courthouse doors. The cases that I was bringing challenging patterns and practices of profiling by the police can't even be filed in a court of law today. In a series of cases beginning with McCleskey versus Kemp and Armstrong versus the United States, the US Supreme Court has ruled explicitly that it does not matter how overwhelming your statistical evidence is. It does not matter how severe the racial disparities are. Unless you have proof of conscious intentional bias, 
tantamount to an admission by a law enforcement official of bias. You can't even state a claim for race discrimination in the criminal justice system today. In this way, the US Supreme Court has effectively immunized the system of mass incarceration from judicial scrutiny for racial bias, much in the same way that it once rallied to the defense of slavery and Jim Crow in their days. But of course, being swept into this system at a young age with little hope of challenging the tactics or the bias that got you there is just the beginning of the odyssey for so many. Because once you're swept in, you're ushered into a parallel social universe in which the basic civil and human rights that apply to others no longer apply to you. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box on employment applications asking the dreaded question, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Doesn't matter how long ago that felony may have occurred, months ago, weeks ago, or 35 years ago. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box knowing full well your application's going straight to the trash. Housing discrimination perfectly legal by public landlords and private housing landlords and officials. Public benefits are off limits to people who have been convicted of felonies, like food stamps. Under federal law, you can't even get food stamps if you've been convicted of a felony. What are people released from prison supposed to do? Can't get a job, barred from public housing, private housing, even food stamps may be off limits to you? Well, apparently what we expect them to do is to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support. And paying back all these fees, fines, and court costs can be a condition of your probation or parole. And then get this, if you're one of the lucky few who actually manages to get a job following release from prison, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished to pay back all those fees, fines, court costs, and accumulated back child support. What do we expect folks released from prison to do? I say when we take a step back and view this system as a whole, how it operates practically from cradle to grave in some communities, you have to ask yourself, what does it seem designed to do? It seems designed, in my view, to keep sending folks right back to prison. And that is what, in fact, happens the vast majority of time. About 70% of people released from prison nationwide return within a few years. And the majority of those who return in some states do so in a matter of months because the challenges of mere survival on the outside are so immense. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, my own view is that nothing short of a major social movement has any hope of ending mass incarceration in the United States. And if you imagine that surely something less could do, somehow we could tinker with this machine and get it right, consider the sheer scale of the system. If we were to return to the rates of incarceration we had in the 1970s, before the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement kicked off, we would have to release four out of five people who are in prison today. Four out of five. More than a million people employed by the criminal justice system would need to find a new line of work. Private prison companies now listed on the New York Stock Exchange and doing 
quite well even during times of economic recession, those companies would be forced into bankruptcy. This system is now so deeply rooted in our social, political, and economic structure, it's not going to just fade away or downsize out of sight without a major upheaval, a fairly radical shift in our public consciousness. I love this explanation by Michelle Alexander because she demonstrates how deeply embedded the penal system is in our current society and how it mimics quite accurately the systems of slavery. Therefore, in order to overturn a system that has such strong and pervasive roots, we must think creatively and imagine an entirely different world. Thus, abolition inherently moves beyond just the issues of the current system, but actually requires the building of new systems. Abolition requires us to think of an entirely different culture that does not mimic the punitivism of our society, but rather forces us to find our protection, safety, and care through different means. I think that it is through these alternatives, which inherently work against the systems of colonial and capitalism, that we can make especially strong transnational links. In the article we touched on in our last podcast, South Asians for Abolition Beyond Gilded Cages, the author Mon M writes, and I quote, a South Asian American transborder struggle for abolition will seek and celebrate anti-imperialist, pro-indigenous, and pro-black solidarities. End quote. She continues to say, and I quote, rather than imposing our understandings of the prison industrial complex on those in other places, the first critical aspect of a South Asian diasporic approach to abolition can begin with solidarity towards communities undertaking their own uprisings against casteist, extractive, and anti-black systems. Rather than exercising our carceral imaginations, our communities can engage in a politics of refusal and of militant solidarity by refusing to work with police at their houses of faith, refusing the distilling of the South Asian immigrant experiences as to one predicated on H-1B visas, and refusing the inclusion of our work in carceral technologies. With this understanding of self-determination presented by Mon M, I think we must then challenge ourselves to understand what abolition means in a different context. How does abolition take a different meaning in the South Asian and South Asian diasporic contexts, and how does it remain the same? In order to answer this question, we must refer back to our initial conversation on positionality and understand that there is a vast diversity in South Asia and the South Asian diaspora. Different identities and histories result in different levels of power and the ability of certain knowledges to be legitimized or validated. Thus, solidarity is not only a practice we must embody with non-South Asians, but also within our own community, as we empower the most marginalized members who have been doing this abolitionist work, although not always labeled as such, for generations. This includes Bengali, Muslim, Dalit, Adivasi, Guyanese, Trinidadian, and Nepali communities, which have histories rooted in struggle and resistance. As a member of the Pakistani diaspora, much of my own research, knowledge, and history is within the Pakistani context, but I think it demonstrates transnational similarities in the histories and practices of policing, particularly in the shared history of colonization and imperialism. The origins of modern-day policing in Pakistan are rooted in British colonization prior to the partition of Pakistan and India. As Britain colonized the Indian subcontinent in the 18th century, the previous Mughal Empire and other local organizing bodies were disrupted and eventually eradicated. Then there was the revolt of 1857, in which people fought against the rule of the British East India Company. 
The motivations and details of this revolt are complicated and they can't fully be explained in this podcast, but it involved the cooperation between the Indian feudal nobility, the rural landlords or the tokidars, and the peasants against the abuses of British colonial rule. In response to the revolt, the British feared losing power and were determined to create a system in which they could systematically and violently suppress any challenges to their rule. And yep, you guessed it, it was the policing system. India's current police law came into force some four years ago after an uprising against its colonial masters in 1857 that was brutally repressed. It was designed for foreign conquerors to rule over a native population. Discipline was strict and militaristic. Hierarchy was reinforced by race. Typically, white men demanded unquestioned obedience from all below. Grudging trust was given to, quote, mixed races in the lower supervisory ranks, and the dark natives, who were in the largest numbers, were put on a tight leash. To do this, the colonial masters had to create an esprit de corps that held together through wrong or right. Isolating the natives from the community at large ensured discipline and loyalty in the lower ranks. They were granted powers that would not be questioned when abused and benefits that separated them from the masses, such as better housing. They were posted far from their villages and communities. This built mutual suspicion between the police and the masses. This discipline, isolation, and segregation served colonial interests well. It sustained control through command and not constitutionalism. The Indian variant of colonial police force became the dominant influence on police development and the template for law and order in many colonies of the British Empire, including most of Africa. With imperialist interests in mind, this design was meant to control rather than protect and suppress rather than support local populations. Now, this all sounds quite familiar, doesn't it? So then, after the independence from Britain in 1947 and the partition of India and Pakistan, the Imperial Indian Police was renamed the Indian Police Service, and the Pakistani Police Service was created, with much of the same roots. Hassan Abbas, a research fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard University, writes, Groomed as an imperial force tasked to coerce rather than protect citizens in the aftermath of the 1857 uprising against the British, Pakistan inherited a police infrastructure founded on the Police Act of 1861, a framework that provided for an authoritative, unaccountable, and oppressive police force. Abbas then goes on to say, and I quote, The conduct of police towards ordinary citizens is aptly illustrated in the Thana culture. Thana is the word used for a police station in the local Urdu and Punjabi language. The term Thana culture is used to signify the abuses committed by police during interrogations in police cells, corruption by the force, and the fact that the powerful and influential segments of society can get away with any crime. Pakistani newspapers are frequently filled with stories of police high-handedness. They are mostly reports of torture in police stations committed to force alleged criminals to confess to some undetected crime. There are also stories of faked police encounters, extrajudicial killings, that result in the elimination of undesirable elements of society. The phenomenon of unlawful search, seizure, and arrest is also quite widespread. This arrogant police attitude is rapidly becoming the norm in Pakistani society, and instead of providing safety, the police image and presence creates fear and insecurity in the public. End quote. Through this idea of Thana culture, we can come to understand that the roots of abolition are already in place in Pakistan. Understandings of the police as forces of state violence rooted in, as Majid Darawala informed us, colonialism, racism, colorism, casteism, and capitalism are common. An example of this can be seen in Pakistan through the practices of debt bondage, also known as peshki. Debt bondage is a system in which work is exchanged for debt, which ultimately can never be paid. 
In this form of modern-day slavery, marginalized communities are targeted, particularly Dalit Hindu minorities in Pakistan, within the agriculture industries and brick kilns. In this system, enslaved laborers are subject to physical and sexual abuse, constant surveillance, and confinement. Key to the survival of this debt bondage is the Pakistani police force, which functions as an institutional body that can arrest any enslaved workers that attempt to escape. Similar to the former Southern slave patrols in the U.S., this police force returns bonded laborers to their quote-unquote owners, who then often hold the laborers in their own private jails where rape, assault, and even murder are commonplace. The similarities between these institutions of policing, imprisonment, surveillance, and courts are undeniable. Although there are indeed differences in the histories of the practices, the timelines, and how the public has responded, it is clear that policing, both in the U.S. and in Pakistan, is a force of violent control by powerful institutions targeting marginalized communities. In both the U.S. and Pakistan, we can see that policing originated as a system of control and pursuit of colonial and imperial power. It has since adapted and reformed to become even more pervasive and embedded into our societies, even developing its own internalized and normalized culture. It is in this culture in which I find differences in the practices of abolition in Pakistan and in the United States. It seems, to me at least, that the language of abolition is quite rare, if not invisible, in conversations surrounding the institution of policing in Pakistan. Although it has been difficult to find academic studies of this, which I think is partially due to the undervaluing of minority knowledge and experiences, and also partially due to the differences in language and cultural understandings, which we will address more in the next podcast. I think we can see this most clearly through Pakistani media. In some of the most popular dramas, like Akhri Station, Chikh, Esi Hai, and Udari, we can see the well-understood narrative of the Tana as a space of sexual and physical violence used to protect the interests of the powerful and wealthy. By no means are these dramas trailblazers, like the drama Chureyos or the movie Bol, or labeled as quote-unquote abolitionist. Rather, they simply reflect the common cultural understanding of the police. Unlike mainstream Hollywood cinema, which often falls into the trap of glorifying the police and prison systems, I think there is some sense of common understanding of the police's inability to actually protect and care for communities. However, I think there is still definitely a lot of room for Pakistani media to move beyond ideas of police corruption and move more towards the understanding of the police as unreformable. I think this is a necessary and key step in pushing for abolition. But how do we get there? I think both South Asian and Black American radical thinkers have pushed us to imagine how we can move towards a successful abolitionist movement that does not fall into the traps of reform. Arundhati Roy, the Indian author I mentioned last episode, verbalizes an understanding of building this world that is very similar to mine. She says, I asked people, including Gandhians who, who preach nonviolence to, to people but sell them to the state, I said, you know, nonviolence is a wonderful form of, of political theater, very effective when you have an audience. And I'm, I'm not against it by any means. But I just wanted to ask you if you're a poor indigenous tribal person living four days walk from the main road. The forest is flooded with soldiers who surround your villages, who burn them down, who steal the animals, who rape the women. Which kind of nonviolence are they supposed to practice? I mean, who is watching them there for them to perform a hunger strike? How can they go on a hunger strike when they're already starving? 
You know, how can they boycott goods when they don't have any goods? Roy reminds us that nonviolence as an effective strategy is a privilege. As communities who have suffered under colonialism, we must remember our history and the lessons our ancestors taught us, that the overthrow of empire does not come peacefully or diplomatically. Similarly, I think Kwame Ture, a Black civil rights organizer, leader in the Black power movement, and writer, expresses the same views when he says, I guess we could start with 1956 for our generation. This was the beginning of the rise of Dr. Martin Luther King. Dr. King decided that in Montgomery, Alabama, black people had to pay the same prices on the buses as did white people, but we had to sit in the back. And we could only sit in the back if every available seat was taken by a white person. If a white person was standing, a black person could not sit. So Dr. King and his associates got together and said, this is inhuman. We will boycott your bus system. Now understand what a boycott is. A boycott is a passive act. It is the most passive political act that anyone can commit, a boycott. Because what the boycott was doing was simply saying, we will not ride your buses. No sort of antagonism. He was not even verbally violent. He was peaceful. Dr. King's policy was that nonviolence would achieve the gains for black people in the United States. His major assumption was that if you are nonviolent, if you suffer, your opponent will see your suffering and will be moved to change his heart. That's very good. He only made one fallacious assumption. In order for nonviolence to work, your opponent must have a conscience. The United States has none. Has none. Ture forces us to recognize that simply boycotting the police and other violent institutions is not enough for the abolition of these powers and transformation of our communities. Utilizing the logic of both Roy and Ture, we must understand that pushing ourselves and our communities towards abolition is not a nonviolent effort. So now that we have this understanding of policing and abolition in our quote-unquote homelands, how do we move forward? Personally, I am reminded of an article by Sasha Jay entitled Police and Prison Abolition, Reconceptualizing Justice, in which she writes, and I quote, With George Floyd's death, people in the U.S. and arguably internationally are reckoning with this external and internal introspecting and attempting to advance abolitionist ideas through protests, educational webinars, and calls to city government to defund police and channel cuts to community-oriented initiatives and public education. For me, as a non-resident Indian who has lived in the U.S. for the past five years, I do not doubt that there are so many NRIs and Indians based in India that are now also waking up to this. But I wonder how much of a hold these concepts will have in a country even more steeped in institutionalized injustice, everyday brutality, and an extremely corporally punitive social culture. The most recent prominent case of police violence in India saw policemen in Tamil Nadu brutalize Jayaraj and Benix for keeping their mobile shop open past COVID-19 curfew hours. 
Incidentally, this is not the first time that Tamil Nadu's police force came to be noted for using police brutality. However, this case spurred more cries for police reform and the arrest of the guilty cops. Suchitra Kartekumar, a radio jockey in Tamil Nadu, whose viral video detailing the account of violence against Jayaraj and Benex has made the rounds on every social media platform, even alluded to hanging the guilty police in question. Much like in the U.S. after George Floyd's death, a lot of justifiably angry Indians are calling for the conviction, arrest, and even death of killer cops while demanding that the police system be reformed unreservedly. But why should we expect that reforming a residual system of British colonialist repression, which has mutated to what it is today, explicitly meant to coerce and control, will lead to any change? What is the change and the magnitude of the change we are asking for? Police to be thrown in jails that necessitate police to begin with? Fewer deaths by the hand of the state or none at all? Hanging killer cops for their abuse and thus legitimizing a mode and system of punishment reserved for the quote, worst of the worst, but not pushing back against the conditions and accumulation of power that empowers people to do something that heinous to begin with? We have seen time and time again how punishment, in and of itself, curtails but does not eradicate the possibility of that happening again. As long as we are justifying the need for police, prisons, and all the punishment that they represent, we will continue to see deaths like this. After all, the policemen involved in this tragedy were allegedly punishing Jayaraj and Benix for staying open past curfew. It is not just the individuals that are the problem. It is the institution and the culture that legitimizes it, and what the institution upholds, represents, and allows to happen in the name of upper-class, privileged, upper-caste, and quote-unquote true citizen safety. We need to expand the limitations we have placed on our understandings of what justice and accountability look like beyond this one, the one of punishing bad people, in power or not, using the mechanisms of the same institutions that delegate and take away that power. I love that Sasha pushes us to move past our punitive understandings of justice, both in the context of India, but also in the U.S. And I think it is Sasha's identity as a member of the Indian diaspora that makes this even more powerful. As members of diasporic communities, we have immense power and potential to connect global movements. Through our unique position, we are able to see how violent institutions such as policing and the prison system are global issues constructed by capitalist and imperialist interests. Yet, we are also able to grapple with the local differences and witness how movements across the globe are able to build off of each other and exchange ideas. In fact, we, ourselves, are some of the key agents in this building and transformation. By connecting these histories and practices, we are already setting a foundation for transnational movements to grow. Through our diasporic networks, we are able to push our movements beyond colonially constructed borders while honoring our ancestors both in the homeland and in the communities that we currently reside within. However, while using these knowledges, we must still remember, as in the words of Mon M, that, quote, transnational solidarity can't be prescriptive. It has to be oriented towards self-determination for everyone. Abolition as a concept isn't just one vision, but a revolutionary project for communities to free themselves. It's something that communities have to define for themselves, end quote. This returns us full circle to our conversation on positionality and solidarity. As Mon M also states, and I quote, Following the leadership of Black, Indigenous, and Dalit leaders, and recognizing that we all have a shared, interdependent stake in dismantling the tools of oppression, policing, surveillance, institutionalization, credit, land, and wage theft, South Asians can move towards deeper trans-border collaboration against carceral systems. From rampant Islamophobia in the U.S. and in our communities, to patriarchal violence against women and trans people, to entrenched and covalent practices of anti-Blackness and anti-Dalitness, we know that 
being for Black lives is about an act of support for abolition, end quote. As Mon M so eloquently connects, it becomes even more clear that these distinctions of abolition, justice, and solidarity are complicated individual ideas, but are all very connected. It is in these very connections that I think we can also form hope and reimagine our world. Therefore, as we have come to understand that these systems of policing and imprisonment must be abolished, we've also found that necessary to abolition is the building of new systems of care and justice. But how do we get there, and how do we use our experiences, knowledge, and histories to build this world? Tune in to our next podcast to explore these questions. 